Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is international best-selling author Harlan Coben. Harlan is a perennial New York Times bestseller, and his fans have bought more than 70 million copies of his novels, and he's published in more than 43 countries around the globe. Harlan's also created and exclusively produced the, sorry, executively produced the Netflix television dramas Safe and The Five, and he's currently busy filming The Stranger based on his novel of the same name, also for Netflix. Harlan's novels have also been turned into films and TV shows in France and Germany, and he's accrued significant critical acclaim. He's the first author to have won the Edgar Award, the Seamus Award, and the Anthony Award, in addition to international writing awards across Europe. His latest release, called Run Away, just landed at bookstores and an internet near you on March 19th. Without further ado, Harlan, welcome to Writers on the Beat. Thanks so much for making time to join me today. Thanks, Gavin. Nice to be here. What do you want readers to know about your newest novel, Run Away? Uh, I want them to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I never like talking too much about what, you know, the novel is it's a story about a family and uh, um, what happens when one little thing kind of goes wrong and spirals and involves, it involves cults and those genealogy websites, it involves drug abuse, it involves colleges and acceptances and all of that. Um, and, you know, I, just, I never really like talking too much about the book because I'm hoping that the reading experience will take over for me there. So that's sure. that's my quick answer on that. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and you already kind of brought it up, but most of your stories involve uh, familial themes and a lot of the interpersonal bonds that most readers are, are going to be, you know, personally and uh, familiar with themselves. Uh, your characters seem to be consistently haunted or helped by their past experiences, and there's always an old locked-away skeleton somewhere coming out of somebody's closet. Do you tend to find most of your inspiration from within your own friends and family, or do your stories come from news headlines and overhead, overheard snippets of conversation at the local diner? Well, all of the above. I mean, I, I think that people give a lot of cute answers, but at the end of the day, I think most of it just comes off of my imagination. Mm -hmm. I constantly am asking what if. So, for example, the beginning of this story, um, the opening line, the opening page, Simon Green, Simon Green is, is sitting in Central Park, Strawberry Fields to be more exact, um, by the famous uh, Imagine Mosaic. Maybe some mm -hmm. of the tourists out there have seen it on 72nd Street. And he's sitting there in the old Strawberry Fields, and there's always a street musician mangling some Beatles tune. And as I, was, I sat there one day, and I'm doing that, and I'm looking at the at the street musician kind of begging for money, kind of playing the, banging the song, and I kind of thought, what if Simon was there, sitting here, and he looks across, and the person playing the music was his daughter? Mm -hmm. What if she was strung out in a junkie, and he hadn't seen her in six months? What a great place to open the book. And that was the start. Of, and that is the start of Runaway. Now, your your hooks and opening lines are notoriously gripping, and your chapter endings practically turn the page for me as I'm reading through these books. How much hate mail do you get that's timestamped something like Zero Dark Thirty with complaints about lost sleep or endangered <laughs> jobs or threatened divorce? Oh, I love that. And it turns me on. You know, <laughs> I, I, my, sort of my job, it's, uh, 
I want you to take Runaway to bed at 11 o'clock tonight and say, oh, I'm just going to read for about 10 minutes. And then four or five in the morning, you're cursing me out. I love that. That's, you know, that's the experience I love as a reader. I love that experience when you're going on vacation, but you'd rather stay in your hotel room and read than enjoy the sun or the sights. And um, I hope I give that to my readers. That's, that's what I want. I want you to be so immersed in Runaway that, you know, you don't want to really do anything else but be there. Yeah, you know, it really is an incredible gift when when you're able to to give that to folks and have that kind of connection. It's it it, it really surpasses a lot of the human experience, I think. Um, Thank you. I agree. And in terms of your your novel history, you've written mostly standalone books, right? Um, well, I've written eleven Myron Bullet Pars, three nine Myron Bullet Pars, so that's fourteen, and that would mean seventeen. Standalone. So yes, standalones are the most. Now the in you know I, I think a lot of series writing, other than you know some of the the Agatha Christie work of long ago, most writers, especially in the, thr- in the thriller genre, tend to really focus on writing series. And uh, there are only really a few standouts that very well, like yourself and James Patterson, uh, Stephen King, John Grisham. It really do well and have a huge fan base without giving them that series experience. What kind of drove you to go down this road less traveled? Well, I've written seven Myron Bolotar novels in five years. Um, and they were doing fine. You know, mm-hmm. good people were buying them and they liked them. They weren't really knocking it quite out of the park. Um, the way they sort of were, the books are, you know, they're not, they weren't selling the way the books sell. So now, but you know, after seven books, I kind of said to myself, do I, 20 or 30 years down the line, want to be writing my 35th Myron Bolotar novel? And the answer was sort of no. Um, um, I don't, it's not Agatha Christie or her Claude Poirot, whatever ages or changes and just solves a crime. Every Myron Bolotar novel is personal and he ages and changes. So that was part of it. Second part of it was that um, I, my ego, I just wanted to show that I could write something other than a Myron Bolotar novel. But the third reason, probably the most important reason is I don't start with a character when I do a novel. I start with an idea. And I had this idea I loved about a man and a woman who are married and she's murdered. Eight years past, he gets an email, he clicks the hyperlink, he sees a webcam and his dead wife walks by. And I love this idea. But of course, Myron didn't have a wife who died eight years ago. So I created David Beck and I told the story and I called it Book Tell No One. Um, and so once I started the standalones and they became, Tell No One was sold more than the, the seven Myrons combined times 10. Wow. Um, that's what, that was the big breakout. And then people went back and bought Myron and learned about Myron. But really Tell No One was the life-changing the book for me. Now that first series and, and Myron, he's a, uh, a sports agent, and I, I don't know of of anyone else that's using a, a sports agent as their fictional protagonist. Um, what inspired that character in that series? Frankly, the the idea for a sports agent came from my agent at the time. He had thought that um, he had he had thought that it would sell well and um, that he could maybe get a deal for it. At the time, I was mm-hmm. a starving artist, so I gave it a try. Actually. To show why you should never jump on trends, by the way, for the listeners, this was in the <laughs> early 90s. And Sue Grafton was huge and Sarah mm-hmm. Bretsky was huge. And there was a big movement. Um, and, and you wanted me as a guy to write uh, a, sports, a female sports agent character, which is idea. 
And I went home and I started to try that and it didn't really happen. But Myron was there. Myron was somewhere in my subconscious. And I said, well, you know, forget what the market says and do what you want to do. And it is. And so that, that worked out. Now, other than writing in, uh, on your open, open source internet history, there's you know, quite a bit of involvement with, with sports. Other than those two, I mean, I guess unless there's not a third option, what, what else are you personally passionate about? What do you mean, what am I, in my real life? Yeah, yeah, given the chance to be entirely selfish, what would you prefer to do with the bulk of your free time? Um, right. I don't really have free time. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't have hobbies. I, I, I either am involved with my family, I have mm-hmm. four kids, or I'm writing. Um, I, you know, it's funny, the Financial Times just contacted me to do a story, and they always want to do something, you know, like weird. So they want, they're want now doing hobbies. So they okay. sent me examples, and one guy collects old comic books, and another one is a chess master, and another one does something with stamps. And I'm like, dude, I don't have anything like that. My creative outlet, which is why people are painting or sure. collecting, is writing. So mm-hmm. that's what I do. I mean, you know, the only other thing I do, you know, sort of steadily is golf. Other than that, I'm a dabbler at everything. You know, I dabble at this and dabble at that, but I don't really have a serious interest or hobby like that. Now, talking about your your writing, um, despite all, all your fans and in, in your success and, you know, the most positive accolades and notoriety that you've earned as a fiction author, you've talked before about how uh, you remain insecure in some portion of your writing. And for me personally, uh, my insecurity hits usually about two thirds of the way through the draft. And it sits here at the keyboard with me until the last few chapters. It's like a, a visitor, this unwelcome uncle that I know is going to visit and there's nothing I can do to stop him from staying over for a while. What's your relationship with your uncle insecurity like? Well, my uncle's security stays around a lot more near does from the sound <laughs> Mine is more like a tattoo you can't get off. Um, the insecurity raises head all the time, and, and I'm not sure. Well, it's an interesting paradox, and I've thought about this for quite a bit. Because part of us are, you know, and all writers have this experience. So if, actually, if you're not experiencing this and you're a writer out there, probably give it up. If you have tremendous confidence in what you do, and you don't have any of those moments of doubt or insecurity, you probably suck. And so my <laughs> advice would be to quit now. Only bad writers think they're good for the most part. But yeah. at the same time, while I say that, I'm insecure and I think I suck, there's another part of me that has the hubris to say, I'm going to write a 400-page novel like Runaway, and you're going to pay me to read it. I mean, what hubris that is. Yes. What overconfidence that is. So it's an interesting combination. If someone will say to me, well, that's a paradox. That's, that's a contradiction. I'm like, yeah, I love it. I mean, things... A lot of things in life sound like they're complete contradictions. And this is one of them. So you have to have a little bit of both. You have to have that insecurity and that feeling that I'm not really good enough, while at the same time having that hubris that says, yeah, I'm pretty good. I must be able to, people, you know, really want to read this. Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, those those two things have to coexist. And I, I think without the emotional roller coaster that, uh, the writing is, um, it wouldn't be a, a trek or a journey worth going down if you know it was just a guaranteed success and guaranteed outcome. Everybody would do it, and it wouldn't be worth anything. You know, it's, there'd be no struggle. Right. Of course, right. there also wouldn't be starving artists, but there'd be no struggle. <laughs> when um, 
when, when did you know that you wanted to be a writer and that you could cultivate that intent? Um, when did I know I could be a writer? I, I, it's a very slow process, I think. I mean, when I started out, my dream was to have one book published. I didn't care if it sold. I just, I just wanted one book published. I wanted to walk past the bookstore one day mm-hmm. and see one book out there. And then you say to yourself, wouldn't it be great if you could do it again if you just had two books published? Yes. And then it becomes, wouldn't it be great if you could scratch out a living on it? Wouldn't it be great if you could be, hit a bestseller list? Wouldn't it be great if one day you were number one on the bestseller list? Wouldn't it be great <laughs> if you could sell overseas? All these things were a slow crawl. I don't remember a moment when I finally said, yeah, you're there. Um, wow. uh, I don't recall a moment like that. I'm sure there was one or, or set by several different ones. The other advantage was back in the day that I started, that's like I'm 100 years old, but back in the early 90s, there wasn't Amazon, there really wasn't the internet or any of that. So I didn't know how poorly I was doing. And that's a good Mm. thing. In other words, I would tell people, just write the book, try to stay off Amazon, stop looking at your reviews, stop looking at at your rankings, because I don't know what they were. And if I knew, I probably would have wanted to kill myself or give it up. But I didn't. I just thought I was the cat's ass because I had a book published. It <laughs> didn't, didn't matter to me. It was a paperback original or it only had 15,000 print run. with a, You know, I didn't care about any of that because I didn't know any better. I had no one to compare right. it to. I had nothing to do. So now I would look on the internet and I'd, I'd go, oh, my God, I suck. I better, you know, get a real job. Yeah, you know, I think that, to that end, there is an awful lot of, of information out now that uh... – you know, is is real double-edged sword, right? You know, like you said, it would be better a lot of times to not know than to, to have all this at hand. I don't even think it's a double-edged sword. I think it's just bad. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what, what's good about it. What's good about, you know, find someone finds out I sold 3,000 copies last week or 5,000 copies last week or 180 copies last week. How does that help you become a better writer? How does that help you get to the next step? It doesn't. It's mm-hmm. just distracting you. So I'm not sure. I don't even think it's a double-edged sword. I think it's a single-edged sword that's bad. And that you should really, as much as you can, try to get past it. I mean, try not to read all, all the reviews and, or don't, if you read them, don't take them so much to heart. The only authors who never get bad reviews are unpublished authors. Yes. Yeah. You know, I think that's something that, that uh, writers tend to forget too, is that, you know, this, this is an art form and not everyone likes Picasso. Um, you know, there's, there, there's, is a subjective thing that we're putting out a, even, a, you know, a little piece of our soul, but it's still, you know, up for public criticism and turns out some of the public doesn't know what they're talking about. Some of the public has different tastes and, you know, we have to uh, take the good, the bad, move on and, and do it for really ourselves. I think at the end of the day, um, Great. in looking at some of your, some of your other talks about your process um, without, I guess, having to go over uh, too much of a repeat, but you're probably the most successful pantser I know who works without the safety net of an outline. Um, have you always been able to do that successfully, or is that something you developed over your over your time? No, that's, I pretty much had that forever. But, you know, those are weird terms. And I'm a pantser, but I'm a pantser who knows the ending. So mm-hmm. that's, a big, that's a big difference, the fact that I know the endings and, and other authors don't. So I think that probably helps me a lot. Um, when I, when I write, and I also, while I don't outline, I, I do do more the EL doctor, a method of, or this famous quote, which is, um, writing is like driving a night in the fog with just your headlights on. You can only see a little bit ahead of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. 
So I do see a couple of chapters oh. ahead. It's not like each word I'm writing. And there's a lot of that. I mean, Lee Child is a pantser, much more of a pantser than I am. He has no idea what the ending is going to be when he starts off a book. And wow. you know, talking to a lot of a lot of guys, there's a lot of us out there. And so, you know, that, that that's, I also change up. You know, if it's not working one way, I'll, I'll try another way. But right now, that seems to be okay. Now, you cite uh, William Goldman, the, the author of Marathon Man and All the President's Men, The Princess Bride, as one of your early influences. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of folks will tell you that, you know, you're never supposed to meet your heroes. But I understand you had a very different relationship with someone that you held in such high esteem before you ever met him. I've actually been extraordinarily lucky because you know, he was one of my heroes. And I enjoyed a wonderful relationship with him before he passed. I uh, didn't see him often enough in recent years. But um, meeting him, he, he was funny and he was, uh, he was helpful and, and just a great guy. And I learned a lot from him that I mostly about more about life and the writing life. We really don't talk about the writing method. Uh, writers don't really talk much about how to do it. And the other one was Stephen King, who um, has been super kind to me over the years and even had uh, me as a character in, in The Outsiders, his, his last book. And, uh, you know, also I grew up, you know, grew up, I guess it was more high school, college, right after college, just really reading his books and, and learning a lot from them, too. So those are two of my heroes that I've met and have not only not been disappointments, but have been outrageously kind and great to me. So there you go. Yeah, that's that's incredibly fortunate. Now, um, the desk at my home office is littered with uh, kitsch memorabilia, small gifts from my cop career over the years. Uh, most of them are little inside jokes or emotional treasures that only mean something to two or three people. What's the most important knickknack that you own? Huh. I'm not sure. Um, I mostly keep the little stuff that my kids have given me over the years, like the corny, you're the best dad kind of stuff mm -hmm. is what's on my on my desk right now i don't have really anything on my desk because uh, in one of those like stories i was talking about the new york times this story in my house so mm -hmm. i completely had to clean up my desk because my desk <laughs> is normally a real shit show i mean it's just yeah. piled with crap and so um i was very happy to to get away with that uh so right now i don't really have much on there i, I sometimes will have one of those um stress reducing kind of balls mm -hmm. to squeeze and they'll just toss that back and forth as I'm thinking. Uh, who's your favorite fictional investigator or your favorite fictional crime show? Oh, I don't, have, I don't think I have a favorite. I mean, one of the, certainly one of the legendary ones in, uh, that was a tremendous influence was Robert Parker's Spencer series. Mm -hmm. um, I'm talking the books, not the TV show. Okay. Um, I, I think Parker's probably the most influential private eye writer, maybe of all time, but certainly since Chandler. Um, so I would, I would, I would list that one. TV, you know, we I go in and out of what TV shows that I, I love. I got to do a list that long ago. My favorite TV shows. I don't know how many of these counters. I never really liked too many of the private eye shows on TV. They always seem, you know. If you watch them now, they're really creaky. I mean, I like Mannix when I was a kid, and I like it now. It's like very creaky. But I guess with TV, one, I would have to pick Columbo. Those, those, those episodes of Columbo still hold up. They were really quite excellent. Yeah, when uh, 
when I was charged with uh, with training new cops, one of the first things we did in their first phase of training when we worked on interview and interrogation techniques was I would make them watch an episode of Columbo. And specifically so that they could see how he interviewed people to play a little bit dumb, ask questions, and then, you know, kind of you, you, you work your way around to uh, getting this guy locked in a story, right? And then he's got that, oh, just one more question. And it was a fantastic show. I still love that. Amazingly hard to find these days. Now, keeping, uh, keeping all that, all that in mind, I, I save this one question for last. Uh, unfortunately everybody gets it, but God forbid it should happen. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, which fictional investigator or team would you want to investigate your demise? It's your death and you can pick anyone. Well, it might be self-serving, but I think Myron Bolotar because I think he'd have the most interest in figuring out who killed me since I created him. <laughs> <laughs> he have the, the he would be the one who would really want to. Yeah, he'd really want to, and and, he, and because we're similar, I think he'd be able to figure it out. Perfect. If I was if I was picking a, a cop, I would pick Harry Bosch though for my Yeah, you know he's a he's a, he's a perennial he's a perennial favorite. You know, I I think uh, yeah. you know I think personally. A lot of guys would want not only the crime to be solved, but if possible, let's have the perpetrator wind up dead, right? Yeah. Uh, so there you have Which it. Which is why Myron would be good, because I would have Wynn then would kill him. The sidekick Wynn would kill. So I think <laughs> it would all work out. So Wynn and Bullets are for the win. So yeah. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. And this episode's guest has been international best-selling author Harlan Coben. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.